Church, grace and peace to you guys. If you may open your Bibles up with me, we're going to be looking, as I've had the opportunity to preach through Jude on Wednesdays when I do get to preach, we'll be looking at the small letter of Jude this evening. Letter of Jude, and we'll be looking at verses 14 to 16. And if you don't know where Jude's at, it's the second to last book in the Bible. If you find Revelation, it is right before Revelation. And so the letter of Jude, verses 14 to 16. And for any note-takers out there, the title of the sermon this evening is The Return of the King. The Return of the King. And once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, if you may please stand up with me as we um, hear the public reading of Scripture in reverence from our passage this evening. Awesome. Looks like everyone is there. We shall begin. This is what the Lord has to tell us this evening, church, through the letter of Jude, starting in verse 14. Jude writes, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is our text this evening, church. Let's go before our Lord one more time in prayer. Lord God, we just I am just so thankful, Lord, for just uh, the grace of just gathering with my church family here this evening, Lord. God, just to be able to worship you, Lord, in spirit and truth, Father, Lord, without the danger of persecution, Lord. Um, we can worship you freely, Lord, without there necessarily being a great cost, Lord. Maybe one day, Lord, but not this day. And we thank you, Lord, for that grace. Um, we thank you, Lord, for the grace of just to be able to gather at your feet, Lord, to hear your word preached, Lord God, to, t- to hear what you have to tell us this evening, Lord. And God, although this passage is a heavy passage, Lord, it, it definitely had its beating on me this past week, Lord. I just pray that at the end of it, Lord, it will just refine us, Lord, to be more like you, King Jesus, Lord, that God, we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord. And if there's anyone here who maybe is not a true believer of you, Lord Jesus, God, they have not um, confessed their faith in you and submitted their life to you. I pray that through this message, Lord, that at least a rock, Lord, um, the, just a seed of the gospel will be planted in their hearts so that, Lord, it will be watered and according to your due time that they will come to saving faith in you, King Jesus. But in the meantime, Lord, set me aside, Lord. Um, help me not to mess your reward in any way, but that it is truly your word going to your people so that your people, Lord, here at Sovereign Way will be built up, Lord, to be equipped, Lord, for every good work, to live a life worthy of the gospel, all to your glory alone, God. Lord, be with us this evening, Lord. Um, we lift up all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may sit down, church. Everyone loves a good story. One of my favorite stories as a child is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? A classic. But if you're unfamiliar with this story, let me tell you, it takes place in England during the German air raids of World War II. And to avoid them, you have four siblings that are sent to live with a school professor in the countryside. And, all, and, and it's in his large house that the kids one day eventually stumble upon a wardrobe. 
although it looks like, like any other wardrobe, they eventually find themselves venturing through it and find themselves in a completely new world. Narnia, right? However, Narnia isn't in some trouble when they find it because it's under a curse, under the curse of the main antagonist, the White Witch, causing it to always be winter and never Christmas. Pretty lame, right? As a result, she rules Narnia with a cold iron fist. But despite this bad news, right, the kids eventually learn of a name that strikes both hope and fear to those in Narnia. And that name is Aslan, the lion, the true king of Narnia. And it is the rumors of Aslan's return that leads his enemies, like the White Witch, to shudder with absolute fear. And for those who are on his side, like the kids, to be filled with this living hope. And to spoil the story for you, I'm not sorry, it ends with Aslan defeating the White Witch and freeing Narnia from her curse, resulting in peace. So much more could be said about this story. It's, there's a reason why it's one of my favorite. But there is one thing I want to point out, though, for our need this evening, church. And it's that Aslan is actually a metaphor in Lewis's story. He is a metaphor not only of the true king of Narnia, but the true king of the universe, the line of Judah, Jesus Christ. Where Aslan's return brought both hope and fear, the return of Jesus will be the same on the great day. Of judgment. Although we live in a secular culture that does not believe in the triune God of the Bible, the Bible is absolute in what it teaches as the Word of God. And since God is truth, who has graciously revealed Himself both in creation and in the Bible, the teaching of the return of Christ is an inevitable reality, loved ones. This is why, church, we must be faithful as God's ambassadors to tell people the gospel. Because humanity is inherently evil. We have all fallen short of God's glory by sinning against him. And despite being guilty of cosmic treason against God, our creator, he so loved us, right? By giving his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As a result, the return of our great God, Savior, and King is closer than it was today than it was yesterday. So we ought to be the faithful watchmen in our own generation by proclaiming the good news of the king. And for those who believe in Jesus by faith alone, his return will be a day of great joy because he will judge evil once and for all. Yet, for those who choose to rebel against him, it will not be a day of joy for them. Instead, it will be a day of great sorrow and misery because he has come. As a righteous judge. Therefore, it is the reality of the second coming of Christ that we find ourselves in Jude's letter tonight. Because Jude has been writing to a predominantly Jew, to Jewish churches in Israel during the mid-first century AD. And although he wanted to encourage them about their common salvation in Jesus, he had, he had these rise of false teachers that forced him to change his plans. Consider what Jude says about this in verses 3 to 4 of his letter. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God 
into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So it's here that we see that Jude found it necessary to write his letter to exhort these churches to fight for the gospel. Why? Because certain false teachers slipped into their churches and were perverting the grace of God for their sinful desires. And this was all done in a manner that denies Jesus' sovereign lordship. And not only that, but it is these false teachers who thought that they could send all that they want without any thought of judgment from God. And not only were they taking God's grace, his mercy, his peace, and love for granted, but they were expressing the rejection of his authority as master too. As a result, Jude calls out these false teachers' sins in order to help the house churches of Israel to beware of them. We saw in verses 5 to 8 how Jude compares the false teachers' apostasy against God with three Old Testament types of apostasy. We saw in verses 9 to 10 how they reject God's authority like Satan and fail to submit to him as Lord. And we saw last time how they teach evil and disguise themselves as God's people, wolves in sheep's clothing. All this thing culminates, loved ones, in the final section of Jude's letter about these false teachers. Judgment. Therefore, Jude's main point in verses 14 to 16 which is my main point of my sermon this evening, is that Jesus will return to bring final judgment upon sin. Jesus will return to bring final judgment upon sin. But why? Why will he return to bring judgment? Well, Jude gives us two reminders. Two reminders. First, Enoch prophesied that Jesus will return in judgment. Enoch prophesied this, and we'll talk more about him later. But the second reminder is that false teachers themselves, they are an example of being judged. They serve as an example. So with all this in mind, church, let's begin by looking at the first reminder, which again is this. Enoch prophesied that Jesus will return in judgment. Enoch prophesied that Jesus will return in judgment. So look at your Bibles, loved ones, at verse 14. This is what Jude writes. He says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. For about the past three sermons, Jude has been implementing a a specific strategy when he discusses these false teachers. First, he brings up either an Old Testament reference, like he does back in verses 5 to 7 and 11, or other times, it brings a, Jewish, a story from Jewish tradition, like that one regarding Michael and Satan in verse 9. And it is when he brings up a reference like this that Jude immediately gives commentary. He gives commentary on how these false teachers are the fulfillment of the types from the past. But what do I mean by fulfillment? Because I'm very intentional when I use that word. What I mean by that is that, barring from a common Jewish way to interpret Scripture in his day, Jude is implementing what is known as typology. Typology. What is typology? Well, you can think of it like foreshadowing in the Bible with a prophetic emphasis. And what I mean by that is that when Jude refers to types in the past, he's comparing them to the false teachers in his day. Just like these examples in the past, these false teachers, these false teachers today are just like them. But why does he do this, though? Because the rebellion and judgment of these sinners in the past 
point to the false teachers in Jude's day as rebellious sinners. As a result, they will experience God's judgment too. And this fulfills prophecy because it points to the day that when these false teachers will be eternally judged in the lake of fire, weeping and gnashing their teeth forever. This is why Jude has been alluding to their judgment throughout the letter. We witnessed their guilty verdict last time in verses 11 to 13. Tonight, it's time to look at Jude's pronouncement of judgment upon them. So look at your Bibles again, beloved, at the first part of verse 14. Jude writes, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, and we'll stop there for a moment. And we're going to stop there because there's one big question we need to consider, church. There's one thing that we need to consider because it's going to be key to how we understand our text tonight. And so the first thing I want us to do is look again at verse 14. Do you notice how it introduces a quote? What's interesting is that verses 14 to 15 is the only quote in Jude's letter. Yet, this is not a quotation from the Old Testament. Instead, it comes from the ancient Jewish text of First Enoch. Specifically, First Enoch 1.9, which is a passage about the final universal judgment of God. But what are we to make of this, right? Why does Jude do this? Well, the quick answer is that First Enoch, it's not part of the canon of Scripture, like the rest of her 66 books of the Bible. In other words, it's not God-breathed Scripture. Not only is this the general consensus of the church throughout history, but even the Jews themselves never considered it at the same level of authority as the Old Testament. So this leads us again to consider, why does Jude quote 1 Enoch 1.9? And to help, out, and to help us with this, we find two hints in the first part of verse 14. First, we see Jude mention a person named Enoch. But who is Enoch? Well, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, the author of Genesis, Moses, this is what he has to say about Enoch. Moses writes, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. And check this out. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. And so generally, we see that Enoch, he walked with God. And that means he experienced true fellowship with the Creator by living according to his will. Yet the most intriguing part of this passage, right, is at the end, right? Verse 24 where it says, Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. And before we begin to contemplate on what that means, Hebrews 11.5 gives us the answer. This is what it says in Hebrews 11.5. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So again, just overall, Enoch is a man commended for living a life that pleased God. As a result, God, in a sense, raptured him before he saw death. And to make sure that we don't confuse this, because there's another Enoch in Genesis 4 who was a very wicked man, look at what Jude says specifically in verse 14 of his letter. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, to make that distinction clear. But also notice the number seven, because to the Jews, 
the Jews considered the number seven as the number of perfection. And so in Enoch's case, what, what does that mean? Is that Enoch is a very significant person. And we're going to see why shortly. And Jude further elaborates on this by saying, Enoch prophesied. Enoch prophesied. Where Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11 emphasizes Enoch's faith in God, Jude is emphasizing Enoch's role as a prophet of God. That is her second clue. And so to kind of put all these pieces together, because it's kind of a lot, First Enoch is an ancient Jewish work written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Yet, this book was not written by Enoch, but by the Jews who attributed these words to him. Furthermore, First Enoch is not viewed as scripture both by the Jews and Christians. Yet, Jude is saying that the historical Enoch prophesied in Jude 14 to 15, which is a quote from 1 Enoch 1.9. So what are we to make of this, loved ones? The best explanation for all this is that what 1 Enoch 1.9 is saying, it's true. Why? Because it's rooted in Jewish oral tradition, traced all the way back to the man himself, Enoch. And although 1 Enoch is not scripture, the content of 1 Enoch 1.9 is true. That's why Jude can quote from it as if it was scripture, because the content of it is true. But then you might ask yourself the question, well, John, why did Jude go through all the trouble of quoting 1 Enoch and not just some other Old Testament passage, right? I can give you two reasons. Reason number one, his audience, which were predominantly Jewish, they were aware of 1 Enoch. They knew of 1 Enoch. And so referencing it was a great way culturally to communicate his message to his audience. And that's a valuable lesson for us as Christians when we want to communicate the gospel. Because when we communicate the gospel with others' loved ones, we want to make, we want to make sure that it makes sense to our audience, right? Not only in our own culture, but especially in the cultures of others, right? That's the first reason. But there's another reason. And this is brought up by the Protestant reformer John Calvin. John Calvin says that Jude wished to repeat from the oldest antiquity what the Spirit had pronounced. And so think about that for a moment. Enoch prophesied in his lifetime of a day when God will bring universal judgment upon the world. Why? Well, because humanity is sinful, worthy of God's judgment. And now think about this with me. What big event happens right after Enoch gets taken up into heaven? To give you a hint, his great-grandson is Noah. Enoch is warning about the great flood. As a result, Enoch is the perfect person for Jude to quote from regarding judgment because Enoch was prophesying about the greatest example of judgment in the Old Testament. This serves as our key to understanding our text, loved ones. Enoch was a man of God who walked with them. He was a man who not only loved God, but his neighbor too. So much so that he was warning them about God's coming judgment through the flood. And as an act of God's grace, he raptured Enoch before he could see death. Furthermore, Enoch serves as an example to us on how we ought to live, church. Because like Enoch, we ought to walk with God, right? How? Well, consider what the prophet Micah says in Micah 6.8. 
He says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To walk with God means that we do what is right by imitating our God who is goodness. We love God and our neighbor. We live a life of humble dependence upon him always. And part of all this is how we live as a witness for Christ in this fallen world. Enoch was prophesying about God's judgment in a time where human wickedness was just running rampant. Likewise, we ought to live lives worthy of the gospel by not only imitating Christ in holiness, but by sharing the good news with others. And the only thing, and this is so important, loved ones, the only thing that makes the good news good news is in light of the bad news. And it's really a tragedy that this makes some professing Christians today very uncomfortable. But yet, the good news is only good news in light of the bad news. Loved ones, we have no gospel unless we share why it's the gospel. Because the bad news is that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Instead of worshiping God as a creator, we worship everything else in creation but God. We live as if we are God ourselves. And as a result, the wages of our cosmic treason Our sinning against God is eternal death and hell. That's the bad news, but yet there's good news. And the good news is that God sent his eternally begotten son into the world. Jesus, the son of God, added humanity to himself. And so as the God-man, fully God and fully man, Jesus lived a sinless life and died on the cross so that if you repent of your sins and believe upon him, both as Lord and Savior, by faith alone, you will be saved. And not only are your sins forgiven because Christ died in your place, but you're able to live the life you were originally created for, enjoying God and glorifying him forever. And we know all this is true because Jesus rose again from the grave three days later. Enoch knew judgment was coming, leading him to prophesy and warn the people in his day about it. Likewise, loved ones, we must be faithful in sharing the good news as the watchman to this generation. For as Jude will say in verses 14 to 15, Jesus is returning in judgment. Therefore, look at your Bibles, beloved, at the rest of verse 14 and verse 15. In light of the false teachers in Jude's day, Enoch, by the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So we see here that Enoch prophesied by speaking the content of Jude 14 to 15. And the key subject in this prophecy is that the Lord is coming back. Yet where Enoch said the Lord is coming back, Jude is a little more specific in saying that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And we can know that for, and we can know that for two reasons. First, when Jude mentions Lord in his letter, he, is always, he always has the Lord Jesus in mind, except in verse 9. But not only that, but secondly, when the return of the Lord is described in the New Testament, it is always in reference to the Lord Jesus coming back. In Christian teaching, this is called the parousia, 
It's a Greek term, parousia, which means the second coming of Christ. And a clear example of what Jesus says about himself is what he says in his Olivet Discourse. Consider what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 33. Our Lord says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goat on his left. Consider also another passage by the Apostle Paul. This is what he says to the believers at Thessalonica regarding the second coming of Christ. So in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7-9, Paul writes, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mights. And to, just to kind of keep building on that, right, there's even many Old Testament passages that refer to the day of the Lord. That is, when God returns to judge sin once and for all. And although the Old Testament only refers to the Lord, it is during the Christ event, again, that Jesus himself teaches us is that he is the one who is going to return in judgment. Therefore, when Jude says the Lord will return, it is referring to Jesus. And that word, come, comes in Jude 14, it's a Greek verb portraying the future. But not just the future, but it's portraying the future in such a way that it is as if it already happened. In other words, the return of Christ is so sure that it will happen. And not only will Jesus return, but he will come with ten thousands of his holy ones. Myriads upon myriads of his holy ones. Which is clear that these are angels. But we also know from scripture that he will not only return with myriads upon myriads of his angels, but also with the saints. Christians, right, from all time and places, as 1 Thessalonians 3.13 teaches. So what we see then at the end of verse 14 is the sure reality of King Jesus returning with his heavenly core of angels and saints right, right next to him. And why is Jesus going to return in this way, you may be asking? Look at your Bibles in verse 15. Jude gives us two reasons, saying, one, to execute judgment on all, and two, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So again, Christ will return to execute judgment on all, and to convict all the ungodly. And there's one thing I want us to notice really quickly. Notice the word all, and also that word group ungodly. They're repeated quite a few times, right? Four times each. This expresses just the universal judgment against sinners. And so it's not that God is just going to judge false teachers and everyone else is off the hook. No, everyone who has sinned against him, judgment is coming for them. And before I continue further... The idea of Jesus returning to execute judgment is not something our own culture would appreciate, right? Because to say that Jesus is returning to judge sin um, to our culture, they would say that's narrow-minded. That's intolerant. That's an outdated teaching. That's not relevant to us today, right? Instead, our culture might say people have the freedom to live however they want. 
to be whoever they want, to believe in whatever they want. Because since truth is based on their emotional preferences, and what is true for them is their truth, who is anyone to say otherwise? That's the spirit of our age, of our culture, right? And yes, believing and saying hell exists may put you on the wrong side of history in man's eyes, yet it does not mean that we will be on the wrong side of his story when we preach the truth. We cannot care about being in the inner circle of sinful humanity. Instead, we must fear God alone, loved ones, because it is his approval what really matters. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And this is a struggle, loved ones. Don't get me wrong. This is something I deal with at times as well. But instead of giving in to these weaknesses, we must pray. We must pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's wisdom, strength, and boldness regarding these things. That's what the early church did in the book of Acts. Let us do the same thing as well, loved ones. Because as the creator, God, who is truth, he has the authority to alone to judge. Because who is man to say what is right and wrong apart from God? Such arrogance will be judged on that great day. Who is man to determine what it means to be a human being apart from him? The Lord will return with his heavenly host to judge such sin, which is rebelling against his perfect nature. And although our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God will show mercy to those who repent of their sins by withholding what sinners deserve eternal judgments. And he will show grace to those who believe in his son by giving to sinners what they do not deserve, everlasting life. Yet, God will judge the guilty for their sinful rebellion if they refuse to not repent and believe in him. He did so with the generation before the flood. God even did so with his own people Israel. Let us never forget the reality that he will come to do so one last time in the future. Furthermore, as the Holy One, God must judge evil by holding people accountable for their sin. Because if he does not, then he will not be God because he's not just. And to not be just is is to not be good. And since God is goodness, if God is not good, then he ceases being God. But yet... We know that God hates sin and that he will judge sin once and for all according to his perfect nature. Although he does permit evil to happen now, this does not mean that he is not good enough to destroy it or is willing but not powerful enough to do it. Instead, God's perfect wisdom permits it for a time so that sinners may repent and find salvation in Jesus. Because think about it, loved ones. If Christ came back right now in judgment... How many of our family members, co-workers, neighbors, and friends would go to hell right now? How many of you listening to this sermon right now would go to hell? It's a hard reality, I know. But not only that, though, but who are we to speak to God against this regarding this situation? 
As, as God says in Job 48, and the CSB really captures this clearly, God says, would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? The judgment of God is just, church. Although he permits evil now out of his perfect wisdom, he is long-suffering to allow sinners to repent, because once he returns, game over. His wrath will be cast upon sinful humanity. There will be no more time for repentance because it will be time for judgment. As John 3.17 says about the first coming of Christ, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Yet, Christ will return with a sword in the second coming when he returns. This is why Jude says that Jesus will not only return to execute judgment on all, but to convict all the ungodly too. And this verb to convict in the Greek, it means something along the lines of bringing a person to the point of recognizing their wrongdoing, their sin, right? And what type of wrongdoing, though, is Jesus going to convict not only false teachers, but all who fail to repent before him on that day of judgment? Well, Jude says in the rest of verse 15, about all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so not only will Jesus convict the world for all their sinful actions, but also their sinful words. And we're going to see a specific examples of how the false teachers themselves were um, sinning with both their actions and their lips when we get to verse 16. Yet, right now, I want the fact that Jesus will hold us accountable for our words to sink in for a moment. Although Enoch's prophecy is about God's judgment of believers, Christ is still going to judge his people, Christians, regarding all our good and bad works on the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this includes not only our actions, but our words. And this includes words such as our thoughts, right? And so these are things we've got to be mindful of, loved ones. And so with all this in mind, we must be mindful of how we live. Let us be mindful of how we conduct ourselves, not only before the world, but with each other. How do we use our tongue? To bring others down or to build others up? Do we use harsh words on social media to destroy others, even fellow Christians, so that we may proudly puff up our own podium? Just like the Tower of Babel, the Lord will stoop down to see our works and judge us accordingly. Do we love God to the point that it leads us to love others in the same way that he has loved us? And does this flow not only through our actions and our lips, but from our very hearts? Will our Lord find any hypocrisy in us on that great day? As Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Therefore, loved ones, hell is real. God is real. Sin is real. Unbelievers, alongside the devil and his angels, will be condemned in the lake of fire forever when Christ returns in judgment. 
And this is comforting news to the believer. And I know that sounds crazy, but because that is going to be the day when sin and evil will once and for all be destroyed. And that will be a time when people from all the nations will gather to reign and worship the true king, Jesus, for all eternity in the new creation. Yet, let us take heed, lest we fall, and anyone for that matter, because we may find ourselves, if we don't take heed, on the wrong side of history, in the hands of living God, the all-consuming fire. As a result, we have seen the first reminder of Enoch prophesying the return of the Lord Jesus in judgment. Now let us turn to the second and final reminder of an example regarding that judgment. And it is that false teachers are an example of being judged. False teachers are an example of being judged. So look at your Bibles, loved ones. In verse 16, this is what Jude writes. He says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Where Jude describes the judgment of the false teachers alongside unbelievers in verses 14 to 15, he now focuses on what did they do to receive judgment. And we see two reasons, sinful actions and sinful speech. And so to begin with the former then, Jude says at the beginning of verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, and following their own sinful desires. So these false teachers then are grumblers and malcontents. And in the Greek, both these words together actually convey the meaning of discontented grumblers. This is what the CSB translation follows. But what does that mean though, right? What does it mean that these false teachers were discontented Grumblers. Well, we find some help from an English Puritan writer, Thomas Manton. He is helpful in defining these terms. Regarding the word grumbler, he says it's the kind of muttering that people do when they are angry or discontent. That's regarding grumbler and malcontent. He says it's the complaining about one's lot, that is, about what God has given them. Therefore, these false teachers are discontent grumblers in the sense that they are angry and discontent with what God has given them. As a result, they live according to their own sinful desires. They live according to their own will instead of the will of God for them. So the rebellion against God's will leads them to be judged by him. And a perfect example of discontent grumblers is Israel in the wilderness. Although God mightily saved Israel from their slavery in Egypt, what did they do? They continually crumbled against God. And remember, this was not due to a mere expression of the hardships in the wilderness, right? There's nothing wrong in expressing our hardships before God. Just go read the book of Psalms, right? What is sinful, though, is that when we do so in such a way that we actually deny his providence to the point that we stop believing he is in control, in other words, Jude calls this unbelief. Look, look, look back at what he says in Jude 5 about the situation. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is exactly what the false teachers were doing. They did not want to submit to God's perfect law or will. Instead, they grumbled against it in discontentment. They did not trust that he was Lord and that living for him would mean rest for their souls. 
All they wanted to do is live how they wanted, by turning the grace of our God into sensuality, denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So the false teacher's rejection of God's will for their life is really the refusal to believe in Christ as Master and Lord. As a result, they would be judged accordingly. Yet, the dangerous thing about this type of discontentment is that it doesn't necessarily need to manifest itself with your actions or its words. Instead, it could be the state of where our hearts are before God. Because perhaps there are times when you're not content with your lot in life. Maybe you express impatience before God as a discontent grumbler. Yet, is this not an expression of our unbelief in God's purposeful sovereignty? Loved ones, and, and this is something I remind myself of myself too, is that if you ever find yourself in a season of life, not content in Christ, do not grumble against our Creator amidst the storm of discontentment. Instead, look back. Look back to who He is and what He has done for you. Again, Thomas Manton once said, one great defect the people of God are troubled with is a bad memory. Loved ones, Remember how he has shown his faithfulness to you in in your life. No matter how hard it is, right? Remember how faithful he has been to you. Remember how he has shown it to you now. And remember how he will do so for you in the future when Christ returns to make all things new. Loved ones, remember Christ. Remember what he has done for you through the gospel because there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's great love for us. As Hebrews Chapter 13, verse 5 to 6 reminds us, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Christ will never leave you nor forsake you, loved ones. Just let that soak in. He will never leave you or forsake you. And when he feels so weak that being content in Christ seems almost impossible, then remember this, that the Lord is your helper. Because it is God's grace that is sufficient for you daily, for it is his power that is made perfect in your weakness. So loved ones, take heed of the warning of grumbling with discontentment. Not only does it lead to unbelief in God, but... It may lead us to follow our own sinful desires like these false teachers. Be quick to trust in the Lord, for he is working all things for our ultimate good according to his perfect will so that we may be more like Christ. Moreover, as the false teachers were living sinful lives that stem from an unthankful heart, Jude has has one more thing to say about these false teachers. Look at the end of verse 16, beloved. Jude says they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. And this phrase, loudmouth boasters, it expresses that these false teachers were using their mouths to utter haughty, pompous, bombastic. They were arrogant in their speech, right? But why? Why were they arrogant? Why were they so puffed up with pride? Look at the very last part of verse 16. They were showing favoritism to gain advantage. And whether it was in their false teaching or just how they merely communicated with others, it was all done in a way for their own selfish gain, their own advantage. As Ambrose of Milan once said, that men with proud spirits bow low 
for their own ends. And whether this means in flattery speech or just showing partiality, favoritism over one group of people over another, again, it was all done for the sake of personal gain. And the Apostle James has a lot to say about this. If you recall, in chapter 2 of his letter, he says that it's a sin to show favoritism and partiality, especially against fellow Christians. Why? Because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. And not only that, but it's an insult to the image of God. And not only to the image of God, but to God himself. So whatever these false teachers were trying to achieve, whether it be for money or power, status, or more possessions, again, it was done at the expense of others. And as a result, they would be judged accordingly, not only for their sinful actions by being discontent grumblers, but also for their sinful speech used at the expense of others. And so let this be another warning for us, loved ones, on showing partiality in any way, whether it is regarding social economic statuses, cultural heritage, or anything else under the sun. We're all image bearers of God. And to treat anyone less than that, especially for selfish gain, is sin. Therefore, we have seen Jude give a thorough case study regarding the false teachers who infiltrated the churches of Israel in his day. We saw how they apostatized the faith due to the rebellion and sin and rejection of God's authority. We saw how destructive their character is, not only in what they teach, but how they live. And as a result, they will be judged by Christ when he returns in his second coming. And not only these false teachers, but everyone who has chosen to rebel and reject God's authority as the king of the universe. As a result, how will you respond to the return of Christ, loved ones? Does it frighten you? If so, repent of sin and live for him. Strive to live for him alone. Do you, do you anticipate it with eagerness? Be faithful with where he has you in life so that he may find you doing his will when he returns. Maybe you're an unbeliever and don't even believe that Jesus exists or that he's returning. If there's anyone here like that, I warn you with what Jesus says about his second coming in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 39. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. If there's any unbeliever here, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus by faith alone, because Christ is the only name under heaven that saves. So loved ones, we're going to see next time how Jude himself calls the churches of Israel to respond in light of these false teachers, which is going to be a call to persevere. In the meantime, for our purposes, let us not forget who our God is and what he has done for us. Always be thankful to him. Be content by being faithful with what he has given you in life, because the more we anticipate the return of our king, Jesus, the more we will live as we ought. We will live less for this age and anticipate the age to come, for it will be when Christ returns that his kingdom is consummated in its fullness. Let's pray, church.
oh, Lord God, what a heavy subject, Lord. Judgment, hell. Lord, I know it doesn't, it's, it's never a comforting reality, Lord Father, for many people. But Lord, it is 